Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Psychoanalysis. I'm Anna Fishson, your host, and today it's my pleasure to be speaking with Alison Bancroft about her recent book, Fashion and Psychoanalysis, uh, published by Ivy Torres in 2012. Alison, welcome. It's great to have you on. Hi, Anna. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, uh, so Alison is, um, just to introduce her very briefly, is a London-based academic, researcher and writer specializing in psychoanalytic cultural studies. She has a PhD from Queen Mary, University of London, and has taught at the University of London, the University of the Arts, and the Sorbonne. Uh, she's currently lecturing in fashion theory at Arts University uh, Bournemouth, and, um, or Bournemouth, rather, sorry. And it's work- Bournemouth, yes, Born- that's right. Bournemouth, okay, got it. And is working on her second book, uh, which actually we hope to, I hopefully will have time to ask you about it. We'll have a chance to listen to what's going on for her most sure. recently. So before we begin uh, in earnest, uh, I'd like to say something about the structure of the book, uh, just to guide us a little bit. Allison, uh, please feel free to interrupt me as I do this. Uh, <laughs> sure, I will do, absolutely. If I say something, like, just off. Uh, so the book basically puts into conversation psychoanalysis and fashion, uh, asking what one offers uh, the other, and, and what psychoanalysis and fashion together maybe tell us about the modern, uh, the modern subject or modern subjectivity. And, and there are four kind of large, meaty <laughs> chapters in the book, the first is about fashion photography, mostly about Nick Knight, um, and we'll hear more about him, of course, but he did a series of photographs, uh, maybe some of you know, of athletes, models, artists with disabilities, missing limbs and the like, and, and with some interesting results. So Allison analyzes these photographs and others in connection with processes of identification for the viewer, uh, specifically hysterical identification. Now, well, that's one of the identifications that you discussed. Indeed, yes. And then the next chapter uh, discusses the work of two huge 20th century designers. I, I like this pairing very much. John Galliano, uh, who was the head designer at Dior for, for something like, like 15 years, I think, until, until he had a sort of Mel Gibson moment. Um, got he, he, he had a fairly spectacular fall from grace, unfortunately, yes. um, which led to him being... Uh, he was um, under the influence of drink and drugs and was filmed um, in a bar in making some rather off-colour remarks. Um, um, he was making anti-Semitic, racist, sexist comments um, and he lost his job when the footage of this behaviour came to light. Um, he's recently been appointed uh, creative director of uh, Martin Margiela. Mm. But he was out in the wilderness for a number of years as a result of his uh, his unfortunate outburst. Right, it was pretty spectacular, and I, I don't think it was even the yeah. first time. But it was, yeah, this like you said, it was it was caught on video, and it was um, anyway. So uh, yeah. 
And then the other designer you talk about is, of course, Alexander McQueen, uh, who's very That's provocative. Cool. <laughs> Just a, of course, <laughs> we can't have a book on fashion without talk. So without Alexander McQueen, absolutely. Um, he tragically killed himself in 2010, but he was at Givenchy for a while, and he was, of course, he had his own line. And uh, yeah. well, we'll discuss. But you, you put you pair them together. You, maybe you can talk about why. Um, uh, but they, they do sort of different things with desire and, and feminine jouissance. So, um, that, that, that is that when the, when the different models of femininity became apparent and it became apparent to me that they mirror, um, the different models of femininity that are, um, suggested in psychoanalysis, specifically Lacanian psychoanalysis, then it became apparent to me that it was a logical pairing to put the two together as a way of exploring the different models of femininity available in Lacan's schema of, mm-hmm. uh, of gender. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it was, you know, it made sense intuitively for me, but then when you, exp- well, we'll, we'll talk about it as we go through the chapters and we t- talk about it in more sure. detail, but it was, um, yes, yes, and it was very convincing what you, what you were saying about their modeling the two different types of femininity uh, who, that do very different things, that do different co- kinds of cultural work, perhaps, or, or, or psychic work. So then uh, the next yeah. chapter uh, is about Lee Bowery, uh, who was uh, kind of a fearless performance artist and fashion icon, experimented a lot mm-hmm. with gender, um, died of AIDS in the mid-'90s. Uh, so, uh, so you explore the concept of transgressive jouissance uh, in... Um, in, in his work and his and on his body even so and I'm so glad you wrote about him because I feel you know of course to the cognoscenti he's he's an icon but I, I don't think people I, I think he should be studied more I think you even point this out in the chapter like why why is there not there more is, yeah there he, is very little about Lee Bowery and if anybody out there listening decides that they want to write about him then please do because not enough people mm-hmm. are giving him the consideration he deserves. Yes, yes. And, you know, if, for those of you who haven't seen him perform, or have, you know, never saw him perform, you might know him from actually the Lucian Freud paintings. He was immortalized by Lucian Freud. Indeed, um, yes. Yeah. So, okay, and finally, the hero of the fourth chapter is Hussein Chalayan, who, whom I, I think is the great, he's just the greatest living designer and uh, very cerebral. <laughs> I think I'm just going to declare it right now. <laughs> very, very conceptual. He, I, I, I frankly, yes. I don't know what he's doing. I think he's at Puma now. I don't even know what he's doing anymore. But, um, but just a little while ago, he was doing very exciting things. And you know, he he had a few diffusion lines and ready to wear lines. I think over the years, but they were never uh, financially really successful. But he. He, His works he wasn't are, a businessman, unfortunately, so it, a lot of the time when he tried to operate under the, uh, under the terms of the fashion industry, um, he, didn't, he wasn't terribly successful. But his work, his concepts, his ideas um, are absolutely epoch-defining, world-class, whatever else you want to say about them. Mm-hmm. Um, as a creative visionary, I think he's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, and they're, they're very, uh, a lot of them are barely wearable, the, the really creative and amazing things. But if you want to, if you're curious and you don't know Chalayan, you, you know, out there, listeners, you should Google 
coffee table skirt or some coffee table dress, maybe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which, yes. Where you, you see in a model convert a coffee table into, into a skirt. Maybe, maybe Allison, maybe you'll tell us more about that. But so, so you, <laughs> so you, um, basically you use his designs and, um, as a way of talking or you, you put them into dialogue with the concept of the, of Lacan's concept of the centom. Yes, indeed. Um, what's, what, what, what was interesting about that um, final chapter, um, the chronology of my book tends to follow the chronology of Lacan's thought. Mm. Um, so I, I kind of cherry pick key ideas, um, which is identification, desire, um, and language. Um, and I then take from, from Lacan and I take these ideas and I put them in dialogue with various moments in fashion and just play about conceptually with the fashion and the psychoanalytic ideas and just see what comes up. And when I came to talk about, um, the Santon, that was very much at the end of, um, Lacan's career and that was when he really started, um, rethinking ideas about language. Now, usually when people talk about fashion and language, it's a, a kind of semiotic approach. Um, it's uh, it, it's based a lot on Roland Barthes and, and so on and so forth. Um, and conceptually, that gets pretty limited quite quickly. Um, I don't think, you know, if, if you're talking about fashion in terms of language, what the clothes actually say, um, I don't think that's... That I don't think there's a vast amount of mileage in that approach personally. Um, people explored it to some extent in the 1990s, in the 80s and 90s, um, but I think we've kind of reached the, the limits of what we can say if we think fashion is language. Well, how does fashion say certain things? But thinking about fashion in terms of the santom, I think... Um, posits language differently for one, which then means you can think about fashion differently. Hmm. And it's not necessarily about what fashion says, but about how language is constructed and um, gaps and elisions and relations to la- between language and the body and all these sorts of things that Lacan explores through the Santom. And we see that very much in the work of, of Chalayan. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, we'll talk more about it as as we just sort of get into that chapter more. Um, sure. I uh, yeah, I remember those years when it was all about uh, the the big question was is fashion a language, and it was sort of uh, inspired in part by Bart fashion system and yeah, and and there was some good argument. Some people like maybe it's a code. It's not a language. It's a code uh, because it doesn't mm-hmm. have. You can't really narrate with fashion. Um, mm-hmm. or that that was the argument, or there's no sequentiality, uh, the way there is. Yes. In, yes, in that right. So, but but it but it, it to, but all of these discussions, yeah, they they didn't pay enough attention to the body and the way that the body is brought into brought into language. Yeah, right. And this is what you want to get at, right? Yeah, language is not this system that's independent of the human subject, mm. you know, as, um, <laughs> as any Lacanian will tell you. Um, language right. is very much a part of the human subject. Language, you, you know, the unconscious is structured like language. Um, the unconscious is not language, that's, so that's the crucial point there. So if you're going to talk about language, you're talking about people. 
and you're talking about the body and you're talking about the unconscious and you're talking about all these sorts of things. Um, and that, that's why the, the kind of psychoanalytic approach to language um, I found um, lended itself perhaps more readily to the idea of fashion as a language rather than a, a, a classic kind of um, structuralist approach mm-hmm. which um, negates the idea of the human subject. And of course the other thing that, that's key throughout my work is the issue of femininity. Um, and the place of the feminine. And you can't really talk about that when you're talking about um, more structuralist approaches to language, whereas in psychoanalysis, it's it's this huge, big flag that you just can't ignore. And that's why it's important to me to do, to take that particular approach. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I'm very... You say that fashion defaults to the feminine. I'm very curious about mm-hmm. that and how you, you've defined fashion. But, well, actually, maybe we can start, we can start like, sort of, in, I kind of go back a little bit and start with sure. how you, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and how, what inspired you to bring this together, fashion and, and psychoanalysis. Uh, because it right. is, it's sort of rare to have somebody who's an expert in both writing about it. Yeah. So I'm very, it's very exciting. Um, yep, yeah, so please tell us. Okay, um, the, genesis, the, the, yes. the, the background, the, the kind of elevator pitch on how I got to write the book. Mm-hmm. Um, my, uh, my, my first degree is in English and I encountered psychoanalysis as a part of my undergraduate curriculum. Um, the one thing we know about psychoanalysis is that it all goes in. So as an undergraduate, I didn't understand a word of it, but clearly something went in, it stayed in there, it fermented away, and then a number of years later when I came to put together a PhD proposal, psychoanalysis emerged from from the swamp of conscious and presented itself as a, a critical framework that I wanted to work within. Um, the fashion side of things is interesting. Um, practical side of it, you know, um, obviously everybody wants to do something original, everybody wants to produce original work, and no one's working on fashion psychoanalysis. There are only three books on fashion and psychoanalysis ever written in English, ever, and mine's one of them. The other two were by men, and they were published in 1930 and 1953, respectively. So it's very much niche field. Just a bit dated, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, Flugel and um, Edmund Bergler have some quite interesting ideas, Um, Mm -hmm. not necessarily very helpful. Um, So obviously I wanted to do something fairly original, so fashion kind of presented itself in that respect. But more importantly, I think it's important that, you you know, your work, it has to come from, if if you're going to do it well, um, if you're going to be committed to something, if you're going to work on something really diligently um, for a number of years, then it needs to come from the heart as much as anything else. Yeah. Um, and that's really where the fashion thing comes from. Um, I don't come from a particularly wealthy family. Um, I was brought up in the northeast of England, um, for your American listeners, kind of the British version of Detroit, um, where I'm from. And my my mum went to work when I was when I was a child. And I, when she went to work, she left me with my grandmother, my maternal grandmother who was always very well turned out. 
She <laughs> didn't have a wardrobe full of Dior and Saint Laurent and all the rest of it. But what money she had, she very thoughtfully and carefully put together a selection of items that she could mix and match. So she always had a very well turned out, very put together look. And going out with my grandma when I was little was a massive deal because she had to have the right hat and the right handbag and she had a little dog and he had a little collar with a matching lead <laughs> and all that sort of thing. And she, she, you know, she served the children's lunches in a primary school. She wasn't, you know, a well-to-do lady. But I learned from a very early age watching her that there was something about being a woman and the presentation of the self that was the two were, were 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 very much combined to be a woman meant to be very mindful of the presentation of yourself to care mm. about the presentation of yourself to invest thought and care into the presentation of yourself the investment of money wasn't an issue because we didn't have any but thought and care um, and creativity and putting together a, a, a the best presentation of yourself that you can then take out of the house and present to the world. I learned from a very, very early age that that was an integral part of being a woman. And as I when I told us, it all goes in. So when I came to do my PhD proposal and then to do my book, all of these ideas started coming back out again. So that's how come I ended up doing fashion psychoanalysis. Mm. So, um, yeah, you, you talk about fashion here as a, uh, as a feminine pursuit and uh, very much a feminine, identified with the feminine. Uh, the, my only, I was curious what you'd have to say, because I, especially as you're talking about your grandmother and I'm listening to the story, it reminds mm -hmm. me a lot actually of my grandfather and why I became interested in clothes and, and fashion. And he was a bit of a dandy and he, he was a tailor. Not by profession, okay. but by, by, by mm -hmm. his, you know, because he, that's what he liked to do. It was for fun. At any mm -hmm. rate, um, so what was, I'm curious what you'd have to say about, about the dandy, um, because it was at least, at least in its initial, um, kind of emergence, it was, it was definitely a masculine pursuit, but it, but it was one that, you know, paid a lot of attention to, of course, clothes and self presentation. And also, um, What's, yeah, like, obviously at the heart of fashion, I mean, this is the sort of paradoxical part of it too, mm. is the, the, uh, the fashion auteur, right? The designer. And um, that didn't, that celebrity designer thing didn't happen until the early 20th century. But, but part of it, you know, and this kind of, it's still around today, this kind of concept of, you know, the genius designer behind all of the, the work, the couture, uh, we have it in Project Runway, right? This myth, this fiction that is maintained mm -hmm. that the designer from the very, you know, sews everything and does it all from beginning to end. It's fully mm -hmm. his. Anyway, so this, this image of this, this romantic notion of the artist genius alone at work, et cetera, with no, with no production team, with no, with no, uh, people in sweatshops, et cetera, um, divorced from that dirty process or, or commerce. Um, this, this image is very masculine. And, and to me, so it's interesting that at the heart of this feminine kind of uh, identified, I mean, it's, it's clear that it is because obviously women's, I just if you concretely like women's wear, there's so much more money in women's wear than men's wear, right? <laughs> or something. But still, it's yeah. like, but, it's, but it is still, and, and everybody in your book, now that I'm talking about it, is 
I think you don't really discuss, or maybe as a side conversation, but you don't, you focus on men. And maybe that's, that's yeah. on my part naive because obviously some of these men are, are in a way identified with the feminine position. But anyway, I'm one curious. Of the, one of the things that I say very early on mm-hmm. in, in the book is that um, um, when fashion first became associated with femininity in the mid-19th century for a variety of social and cultural mm-hmm. reasons, um, these have been discussed by um, uh, Charles Baudelaire in The Paint of Modern Life. We mm-hmm. see it in the, uh, the sociologist, Thorstein Veblen, the psychologist, Jason Flugel. Um, all of these people identify um, the moment when fashion became associated with the feminine. Now, at that point in time, the feminine ex- pretty much exclusively meant women. <laughs> but in terms of Lacanian psychoanalysis, which is my thing, um, The feminine is not just about women. In fact, um, the feminine has no kind of anatomical um, or biological resonances whatsoever. Um, It's to do with the structure of the unconscious, which Mm -hmm. is why it's perfectly possible for both men and women to occupy a feminine position. Indeed, it's possible for men and women to occupy a masculine position. so the I, I do take on board the idea that um, you, you know, but, but there are men involved. What about the men? And it's like, well, <laughs> yes, but it's not just um, the feminine is not just about women. Right. Feminine is about um, a particular psychic positioning, if you will, um, and uh, uh, it's it's a way of of being. Um, it's a it's a way of modelling a particular form of subjectivity. Mm-hmm. It's a way of relating to language. It's it's all of these things within. It's a it's an impossible and contradictory logic. Um, whereas uh, you know, Slavoj Žižek called the masculine stupid. Um, he wouldn't say that about them. Um, you couldn't possibly say that about men. You can't say men are stupid, you know. But you can say about a particular model of masculinity that yes, absolutely it is. Um, whereas the feminine offers the possibility of contradictory paradoxical logic um, and so on. So when the, the observation that I'm dealing with, you know, that I talk a lot about men is absolutely a valid one. Um, but my answer to that is that I'm actually talking about, um, it, well, to be fair, it's not even gender because gender is a, mm-hmm. a, an Anglo-American term. Um, in, in, in terms of French theory, we have sex subjectivity, which isn't quite the same as gender. And this is one of the, the problems I had in translating between French and English, yes. you know, the concepts in French, the language we have available in English to talk about them and the concepts that that language um, embodies in English sometimes doesn't quite get the nuances of the French. So I've tried to make it clear in my book that I'm not talking about men and women, I'm talking about masculine and feminine side positioning and what they actually mean. Um, but this does come up, um, and I do think that I'm probably going to have to, um, in my next book, make it a lot clearer, uh, because you are, you're not the first person to ask me about this, and I think it's a very valid question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I even, I, I understand exactly what you mean, because I, I was asking you more about 
you know, I wasn't even, yes, there are these crude questions like, look, they're men versus, they're, you know, the, the people you talk mm. about are men. But there's also this mm. kind of like masculine construction versus cultural construction versus like the gender aspect, which is like the dandy, you know, is a, is a kind of masculine figure or at least was, again, in the early 19th century, very, very much defined himself. Uh, by his clothes or with, with, with clothes and with appearance. So what do, you, what do you do with these figures? But I think you're arguing in a more psychic plane. So I was, at New, I was in New York and I was at a conference. Um, and after I'd been to the conference, I took the opportunity to do a bit of sightseeing. And I went to the Ralph Lauren flagship store in Soho in New York. Mm-hmm. And... Um, there is research that's recently been published that says that if men um, are feel in any way that their masculinity is being questioned or impugned while they are trying to buy clothes, then they will stop the shopping experience, they'll leave the shop, they won't buy anything. Hmm. Um, so to take an interest, there's, um, I can't remember the, the research, I don't have it at hand, but this has just been published. It's research from America. And when I was in the States, um, I went to Ralph Lauren's store in New York. And to make men feel happier about buying clothes, pink polo shirts and, and such like, mm-hmm. um, they had in, in the shop um, a Jeep. They had a Triumph <laughs> motorbike. Right. They had canoes suspended from the ceiling and several um, Stratocaster electric guitars hung on the wall to reassure men that buying a pink polo shirt or baseball cap or whatever it is that they're buying was, in fact, the first and last word in authentic American masculinity. (laughs) Perfect, yes. So so all of these questions about, um, you you know, men and women, masculinity, femininity... um, there is a massive question there. I use psychoanalysis in my book as a way of negotiating it, but we still don't really have any big answers to this. It's still ongoing, as my as my trip to the Ralph Lauren shop amply demonstrated, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and the other thing that I found interesting relating to that is, is that you, know, you talk a lot about fashion's uh, subversive potential, uh, if you will, or disruptive. Um, yes. and, and, and what we're, but this development of associating fashion with the feminine, at least, at least in the cultural realm, um, mm-hmm. is, is very, and you know, it's very much a 19th, like you pointed out, and you point out in the book, it's a 19th century development, very much linked to descendancy of the bourgeoisie, right? The, the gender regime mm-hmm. that, that it accompanied it, and this kind of connection of consumption with the feminine, not and, and mm-hmm. production with the masculine. So it's mm. interesting when masculine forms of consumption are always kind of like you said. It's very tricky. You have to really lay it on. <laughs> uh, yes. connect, connect it to ac- activities, various activities, mm. Uh, mm. very often, and so that hence the motorcycle and the whatever else was there, the jeep, etc. <laughs> anyway, yes. um, so uh, maybe maybe we just say a few words about how you actually define fashion. Uh, and, and because um, readers of the book might be surprised to learn that a lot of this, uh, the, the fashion you talk about is either in photographs or in museums or like one-off designs. So how do you kind of... Where, what do you, you know, they're yes. not, in other words, like apparel. It's not about street style. It's not, the kind of fashion you talk about 
is the is the stuff, frankly, you know, of, of museums and of. Um, uh, yeah. You look at it and you think, well, you can't wear that. <laughs> exactly. It's closer. It's <laughs> closer. It's on the artistic respects, tip. <laughs> I think that's what makes it fashion. You, you mm. know, um, the fact that it, it's. Um, I mean, everyone wears clothing. Mm-hmm. You, you know, um, we, we all. You, you know, there is the idea of dress, dress codes, and so on and so forth, um, either formal or informal. Um, but we have dress, we have costume history, we have um, clothing, we have all these sorts of things. We have apparel, as you say. But then we have fashion. And arguably, all of these things are synonyms for each other. But none of them are quite exact enough to exactly replace fashion. And the way I talk about fashion, I see fashion as creativity in dress, basically. Um, I think it's important to remove fashion from the fashion industry. Um, I think we can talk about literature without once talking about publishing. Mm-hmm. You know, we can talk about, um, we can go to art and we can go to a museum and you and I could stand in front of a painting and have a, have a long and detailed conversation about that painting without once mentioning how much it cost, um, you know, which auction house sold it, uh-huh. the marketing involved in it, and so on and so forth. You know, so we can have these conversations about literature and art and music and so on to an extent. Um, but for some reason, the only way people talk about fashion is as an industry. Um, I try, I, I tend to buck the trend on that one. I refuse to consider fashion as an industry. I consider fashion as a creative <laughs> form. Mm-hmm. And I, can, I define fashion as creativity and dress. Now, this is mainly clothing, but it's also um, footwear, headgear, um, jewelry, makeup, and so on and so forth. Um, so it's creativity, it's, um, the adorn- it's creativity and dress, it's the adornment of the body. Um, and that's how I define fashion. Um, certainly for the purposes of my book. I know it's not the only definition of fashion that there is, but that's how I think about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wonder, as you're talking about this, you know, why we have such a hard time talking about fashion as art. Is I mean, do you think it's to do with the way that, let's say, Fashion Week even works? Because it's, it's kind of conflicted about what it is. On the one hand, it's very much an industry event. On the other hand, mm-hmm. it's about it's. There are some shows that are like art installations, right? There, so yeah. it, it's partly the confusion within fashion itself, I think, that causes us to confuse art. My, and, and, or yeah. I, um, I, I may be giving too much away here because this is actually <laughs> the subject of my next book. Ah. Um, but <laughs> go, go for <laughs> it. My, yeah. my a, a, a little teaser there, a little plug. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah, my, my sense is that um, fashion is the only cultural form that defaults to the feminine. Therefore, um, and, and because we live in a world where the feminine is seen as subsidiary to the masculine, it's seen as, um, uh, is, um, it, it's problematic, it's illogical, it's... Um, it's it's all sorts of you know difficult things um the the feminine is not seen as a positive contributing Mm -hmm. force 
within our culture. Um, the feminine is, is problematic, it's difficult, particularly at the level of the psyche and as well as the level of culture. And because fashion is associated with the feminine, the it's the only cultural form that is, and because fashion is associated with the feminine, the only way we can give it any sort of legitimacy, give it any sort of value, is to frame it within capitalist discourses. Mm -hmm. frame it as an industry um, because if we foreground it as a cultural as a cultural form then we're foregrounding we're giving femininity um, an authentic voice and that's something that um, a, a patriarchal society really can't accommodate hmm. so that's yeah. that's my theory uh, on why fashion is predominantly seen as an industry rather than as a creative form whereas we can talk about art and literature and all the rest of it quite happily um, without talking about them as an industry. Mm, that's really interesting. Yeah, and I think in, you know, in an interesting way, even though it's tied to, quote, industry, I, I think we're also tying it, in the, when we talk about it, we tie it to reproduction. So in a sense... Yeah. You know, it goes into this feminine realm and it keeps it, yeah, okay, from, apart from this, well, the genius designer image or something. Yes. Well, we mm -hmm. have the, the idea of a genius writer, don't we? You know, the, the poor copy editor slaving away, putting in apostrophes <laughs> and taking out commas is, is largely ignored. Um, and the, I'm the you know, I'm the, the poor assistants that work for Damien Hurst or Tracy <laughs> Emin or any of these other great big, mm. you know, artistic names, they don't slave away in the studio by themselves. They've got a squad of people working for them, producing, actually producing the work. Um, so I don't think fashion is, is unique in that. Uh -huh. um, what is interesting is that um, we... we you know, fashion is one of the things where people seem to like the idea of the industry, whereas with art and literature and all the rest of it, it's given um, the, the, the end product, so to speak, has some sort of inherent aesthetic artistic value that means that the mode of production can be largely ignored, whereas fashion isn't given that, is, is that privilege. Right. Yes, and in, in connection, maybe this is a good, actually, a good segue into uh, the fashion photography chapter, because okay, you, maybe we'll see, but but if not, whatever, <laughs> we're just gonna we're just gonna move on into it because we're sure, we're sure. Out of time. let's press on, <laughs> let's press on. Um, so maybe you can tell us actually about uh, what fashion speak. You know, now that you've told us what fashion is in your in the book, what is fashion photography? Because you point out, and this is so true, that a lot of people actually don't quite know what it is, um, sort of lay people, if you will. I mean, they think it's advertising, etc. And so you, you, first you sort of define fashion photography and you set people straight about that. And then you, you talk about the kind of identifications uh, and sub subject, subjectivities, I suppose one could say, that it inspires. Uh, so, so please tell us a little bit about that. Right, yeah, um... Fashion photography, I think, is um, one of the more interesting forms of photography. That's one of the more interesting genres of photography that are, that's, that that are in existence at the moment. Um, what's interesting is that, in many respects, it's like porn. No one can really tell you what it is, but they all know it when they see it. <laughs> um, so, so it's it's it's. In, in, you know, it, it's very difficult to define. Um, 
But I think that's okay. You know, I don't think we, you know, if, if we start trying to nail things down and, you know, ring fence something by putting a definition around it, then we're, we're then excluding other possibilities where narrowing down creative, um, you know, creative possibilities and the, the way that uh, creative processes can develop and so on and so forth. So I'm quite happy to live without a definition. Okay. <laughs> and fashion photography. Um, it isn't advertising. Um, that's, you, you do get people, you know, who hold up a fashion advert and say, this fashion is like, no, it's not, it's an advert. We can talk about, about advertising, yeah. we can talk right. about advertising, but that's different and we have a different relationship with advertising. Fashion photography isn't trying to sell us something, advertising is, that's, that's the fundamental difference between the two. Um, fashion photography is really interesting because it's one of the only, it's one of the creative forms that actually women are invited to identify with. There was one of the books I read which said fashion photography is a world that largely excludes men. Um, not necessarily, but I do think masculine is conspicuous by its absence a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting, of course, is that fashion photography has seemed to be this awful force. You know, if you, if you open a, a magazine and you look at fashion photography, then you will develop an eating disorder and you'll, mm-hmm. you'll become profoundly mentally ill because fashion has this, it can act by, by some kind of osmosis on, on the poor female brain. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, that's not what happens at all. That's a load of nonsense. Um, but yeah, fashion photography, it's really interesting. It's, it's, it, with its emphasis on the body, it doesn't really show clothes. If you want to see what clothes look like, go, 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 go and hang out in, you know, in the, the, um, you know, the working class suburbs, you know, in, I don't know, in New York, go to Harlem or something. Um, in London, you'd go down to, down to South London or, or Hackney or somewhere like that, see what the kids are wearing. And that's where you'll find, you know, you know, the latest fashion that's going to be picked up. Mm-hmm. Um, fashion photography isn't necessarily about photographing clothes. It's about creating an image of the clothed body, the creatively clothed body that invites a certain type of um, identification, particularly an identification by a feminine subject viewing the, viewing the image. Yes, and you talk about uh, the kind, these uh, more hysterical or, yeah, I would say uh, discourses that are initiated or identifications that are initiated by mm. looking at it. I was wondering if you could say more about that because it's, it seems very radical what you're saying that, that, that actually by looking at it, in looking, especially with Nick Knight's work, um, you mm. start to question you know, like, who am I and where do I begin and end? It's yes. this kind of radical where, questioning where, of the is, subject. Is, is, is this me, you know? Because it's, you know, we know from psychoanalysis that identification is how we constitute ourselves. We look at the world around us and we recognize other people and they're not me and we see images of ourselves initially in the mirror, what I can't call the mirror stage, you know, when you're an infant. and mm. you, every, every, every mother does this. She holds the mirror in front of the child and goes, that's you. Mm. And the child learns that that's me and I'm separate to my mother and I am this, this person and so on and so forth. Um, so there's a constant 
And this isn't a one-off event. This is a constant process, and it's how we, we as human beings relate to images. And it's why images have such a, a really profound effect on, on, on us as people. It's why, you know, people, you know, people weep at art, you know, Yes. Um, or, or films or things like this. It's because it's, it, it, you're not just looking at something completely passively and neutral. There's a process of identification there that speaks to the really deepest levels of your soul. Um, so that's you know, why images are important. Um, in terms of what, what I say about fashion photography, um, I'm, I'm thrilled that you think it's radical, by the way. Thank you. That's, that's one of the nicest compliments I've ever received. Thank you <laughs> very welcome. much for saying I'm radical. Um, but yeah, there's, I did, there's a, a popular idea that hysterical is a bad thing, that if you're hysterical, you're out of control and um, there's something wrong with you and all the rest of it. When really, um, conceptually speaking, hysteria is resistance is feminine resistance to the um, strictures placed on it right. by uh, by a masculine dominated patriarchal system um, so hysterical resistance is just women's way of saying no I am not being that woman I am not being that person that you have set up for me I do not fit that space that you have created for me, I will may, I will resist you pushing me into that space, and that happens at the level of the unconscious, and this results in what, in the 19th century, was identified as hysteria, and all it is is feminine psychic resistance to the positioning of femininity mm -hmm. um, does, as a yeah. relational to. Sorry, go on. No, I'm sorry to interrupt. I I was. I was interested, and we kind of have to sort of start moving on, but uh, from this chapter, unfortunately, because mm -hmm. I, was, I was curious, I, I remember, it was, a comp it was a very complex argument, and I don't want to simplify it by summarizing it, but um, mm -hmm. you, when you, you actually describe the ways that the photography actually invites that kind of questioning. Yes, yes, um, it does, mm -hmm. um, and, this, and this is one of the... One of the um, things about, if, we, if, if you're going to go with my argument that fashion is feminine, fashion as a cultural form defaults to the feminine, then fashion photography invites a feminine questioning in a way that more masculine visual culture probably doesn't. Mm -hmm. That here closes the nutshell, so to speak. <laughs> okay. um, mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, so, and so it's interesting. So you move from the mirror stage in chapter one to uh, desire uh, and, and feminine jouissance, uh, maybe, in, or feminine sexual positioning in chapter two with McQueen and Galliano. And you start, you start the chapter, I just want to read this quote. I thought it was a provocative, in some ways, beginning to the chapter. So this is Galliano speaking okay. now. Um, okay. I want people to forget about their electricity bills, their jobs, everything. It's fantasy time. My goal is really very simple. When a man looks at a, a woman wearing one of my dresses, I would like him basically to be saying to himself, I want to fuck her. I just think every woman deserves to be desired. It's that, uh, is that really asking too much? So 
That's the quote. And when I when I read it, I have to say, I was first of all, I thought, well, Galliano's no wordsmith. Like he's a genius designer, maybe. But I thought it was a little bit of a cliche. But then you did so much with this quote, actually, and you you really took it um, in some very interesting directions. So uh, I guess you know you say so you say that fashion functions in for Galliano uh, as the cause of desire, as he so as he put it in that quote, but you, you give it a Lacanian spin. Um, so it functions as object A, or it can, uh, or it can also symbolize, or rep- and this is even more fascinating, that you can represent the feminine within the symbolic, like, let's say like a garment in a museum, Alexander McQueen appearing, that it's sort of like, here it is, uh, it's representing the unrepresentable, perhaps. So please, ex- please explain this, this is, you know... Really interesting. Yes. This comes from Lacan's idea that nothing can be said of woman. Um, mm-hmm. It's impossible for the feminine to appear directly in the symbolic order. Um, so the, my, my argument then is that, well, how then can the feminine appear in the symbolic order? Because clearly it does. Um, it just doesn't appear directly. And one of the ideas that I came up with when I was thinking about this was the idea that fashion um, is woman's ambassador uh-huh. in, in the symbolic. So um, fashion appears because the feminine cannot, by, by reason of its structuring, appear directly in, in language. So fashion acts as, um, cannot appear in language, cannot appear in the symbolic. So fashion acts as, um, as woman's ambassador. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that was the, the essential kind of point that I was trying to make um, with regards to Galliano. But of course we know that that's not the only model of femininity that there is. There are other models of femininity um, and Alexander McQueen um, presents the other model. Um, and Alexander McQueen presents um, not objet art, um, who, you know, the, the, the object is masculine desire. What Alexander McQueen presents is feminine jouissance, which is rapacious, it's destructive, <laughs> it's terrifying, it's, it's the Valkyries, it's Media, it's Medusa, it's all of these things. <laughs> um, and that's what feminine resource is, and that's independent of the masculine in, um, and the symbolic order. Um, and generally speaking, feminine resource is, um, it doesn't appear in the symbolic, it can't appear in the symbolic, but what Alexander McQueen does is create space where it can be expressed. Hmm. Where um, Suzanne Barnard said, you know, it can be traced in the history of its effects. And, you know, we, we kind of see that in, in Queen's work. So what's interesting is if we compare the Galliano quote that you just gave, where he thinks that um, women should be absolutely thrilled if a man wants to fuck her, because mm-hmm. having a man with a penis in you is the ultimate accolade, it, it determines your worth and your value as a woman and it's something that we should all aspire to and, and be incredibly flattered when, when we're on the receiving end of it. Um, but then Alexander McQueen says something a bit different. Alexander McQueen says that um, he wants women wearing his, wearing his clothes to be so fabulous you wouldn't dare lay a hand on her. Uh, mm-hmm. 
and that's the, the, the key. They're, they're the two models of feminine sexuality um, and feminine um, you have feminine jouissance and uh, masculine jouissance in OGR and Galliano is desperately obedient to the social order and to the symbolic and all the, the, all the rest of it Alexander McQueen realises that actually at the level of the psyche there's a lot more to it than that and he manages to articulate this in his work and that's what makes McQueen so unique that I, I don't think we'll see it like again no one else kind of had worked that out up until McQueen and I don't think anybody else will mm, I, I, yes I tend to I agree I think at least at least right now it's not really imaginable um, mm. but uh, but actually so it's interesting uh, this kind of reaction where how did you put it? The woman looks so so fabulous that um, you wouldn't dare so go near her. You wouldn't dare lay a hand on her, right? But it's also something. There's a kind of repulsion, attraction. This this kind of um, like something scary, something un, untouchable, but 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 that you're but it compelling at the same time. It's just this is Indeed. something that Lee Bowery also did. Uh, but arguably Indeed. in a more sort of gross out, if you will. Uh, well, maybe, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, but it was no, thrilling. that's fair comment. Yeah. <laughs> but it was also thrilling in a certain way. So it was, it was something repulsive and thrilling. And, and maybe this is, uh, well, you, may, maybe you can elaborate uh, this, this, this effect that he, this, the, the, through his performances had on, on, on viewers. Yes, um, Lee Bowery, he, he died um, the year that I moved to London, so mm. I never got to see him perform live. So all I have are friends' stories um, and various photographs, and there are some uh, videos on YouTube of his performances and so on. So you, you, the, there are his... You know, his, he still has a, a, a presence thanks to the thanks to the digital age. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Lee Bowery, he dealt with a lot of his performances were very visceral. But when he did performance art, um, a lot of his performances were very visceral. Um, they relied on. Um, references that a lot of it was very scatological um he gave himself enemies on stage um he once gave birth in inverted commas he came on stage with uh his wife um nicola bowery um she was under his costume and then he lay on he, he sang all you need is love by the beatles and then gave birth to his wife um, so it was uh, there was a lot of it was all very corporeal it was all very visceral um, and so on so his performances um, particularly towards the, the end of his life um, were about the, 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 the idea of the body and its limits and what it's capable of and that may or may not be related to the fact that he was HIV positive um, and he then died of AIDS um, mm-hmm. tragically so it's conceivable that that may have been a motivation for some of his performance work. But in terms of his fashion, um, he was, what, what was interesting about Bowery was um, he, he made all his own clothes. He didn't make clothes for anyone else. He designed and made all of his own clothes. And on the back of the clothes he wore, he became famous. 
you mm. could do this in London in Soho in the 80s. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but Lee Bowery became famous on, on the back of the clothes that he designed and made and wore himself. And what's interesting about that is he said that um, all of the usual ideas about gender and fashion um, are completely irrelevant. He's going to completely ignore them. Um, and he said this back in 1986 or something. I've got a quote from his diary in my book where he actually said, you know, men's and women's fashion absolutely stinks uh, and we shouldn't, you, you know, base our, our idea of dress on gender. And then he would um, tuck his genitals to give himself a flat-fronted um, appearance around his... Um, Mm-hmm. pelvic area he was fairly corpulent so he would tape his chest fat together to give himself the impression of breasts um he would wear um weird shoes he'd wear a big pom-pom so you couldn't see his head and normally you identify people people's gender by their face that's the first thing you look at you know um and so he'd wear it he'd, he'd mask his face in some way mask his whole head in some way um so that, you know, all of the usual signifiers of gender that we usually use to navigate our way through the social world, um, they just didn't exist mm-hmm. um, in, in Lee Bowery's fashion. Right. I mean, One importantly, was, he wasn't trying to convince anybody he was a woman, in other words. No. Right. Exactly. No, yeah. no, no, no. Um, it was, he wasn't trying to pass as anything. What he was doing was saying that actually this passing business is nonsense why do you need what why do we need to have the the binary gender divide where men are masculine women are feminine and never the twain shall meet bowery threw all of that out the window Mm -hmm. what do you think he's saying or lee bowery does for lacanian theory because you you know we could i think at one point you might have said something about queering lacan through through lee bowery kind of or at least through by thinking about lee bowery we can we can think about queering Lacan, and I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that. Yes, and I, I must confess, in terms of um, my initial formulation of this chapter, I do owe a massive debt of gratitude to Tim Dean, mm-hmm. uh, who wrote On Sexuality. Um, and Tim Dean argues in On Sexuality that um, in Lacan's formulation, um, the feminine and the masculine have absolutely not are, are psychic constructions, um, and that, that's all they are. And they have very little to do with um, any sort of sex subjectivity or anything to do with um, socially constructed notions of gender. Because mm. normally, mm-hmm. we, you know, so there's the biological reality, um, and then there is the. Uh, Right. You, there's the biological reality, but then there is also um, the, the, the kind of cultural construction. The biological reality is your sex, and the cultural construction is your gender, male, female, masculine, feminine. And if we take a psychoanalytic model of, um, of, sexu- of, of sexuation, of how we understand masculine and feminine, we realize that actually it's got nothing to do with either anatomy or culture, that it all happens at the level of the unconscious. And then from that, we, we can start to talk about um, agenda in very, in really quite interesting ways. Um, Tim Dean was 
said that in his book on sexuality. Um, I worked with some of his ideas and used them to elaborate my thinking on Lacan and Lee Bowery's work. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this is not your, your Butler, Judith Butler, Butlerian notion of gender as uh, performatively no. elaborated. I mean, the, her argument no. also has been, has been caricatured a lot, I have to say, but... Um, but anyway, yeah, this, this is not about cultural construction. And I think that even I've, in this interview, fallen a little bit into this trap. Or It's hard because it's so dominant, you know, within, within the um, American context, mm. right, not to sort of it's think about sh- the mass. same in the UK. Mm-hmm. same in the UK. It's, it's very much the, it's the Anglo-American tradition. Right. Um, so, so when I went off and started working with French theory, it, you know, a whole vista of other intellectual <laughs> possibilities opened up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, definitely. Okay, so, oh my gosh, we're, we're going to run out of time soon. Um, be, but before we okay. do, do you, you want to say something uh, about uh, the, Chapter 4, about Shalayan and his work and, and how it's expressive of this, of the Santom? Sure, yeah. Um, I'm, as I said, much of my... The, the book follows the chronology of Lacan's thought. So the final chapter of my book is the final chapter of Lacan's thinking, which was when he came up with the idea of the Santom. Um, in many respects, this chapter was quite difficult because Lacan, depending on who you talk to, either contradicts himself when he mm-hmm. develops his idea of the Santom, um, or he develops a completely new way of thinking. Um, I'm not going to take a position on that because that's <laughs> not my project here. Um, but it's, it's an interesting um, approach because um, the Santom is it's not quite the symptom, but it appears in language. Um, and it's what, for Lacan, unites the three realms of the imaginary, the symbolic, and the real. And so the Santom is this kind of free-floating phenomenon in language that unites the, the, three, the three separate um, realms of the unconscious, if you will. Um, so the Santom is interesting because it does that, um, and it does this in language. So when you start talking about um, St. Chalayan's work in these sorts of terms, then it allows you to link language um, to the body, um, and the, which in Lacan is the real, and also um, the visual, which is the imaginary. Um, so it's, that, that's essentially what happens in that in that particular chapter. Mm-hmm. Is there something specific about Shalayan's work rather than another designer, uh, another maybe conceptual designer, or you just thought he was like a, a you know, an ex- exceptional, not exceptional, but um, a good example of what you were uh, I, I, um, aiming Shalayan for? lends himself particularly well to the ideas that I was exploring in that mm-hmm. chapter. Okay. Um, by definition, you have to kind of cherry pick who you're going to talk about and going to miss out, and that's just the nature of the game. When you have to, you know, you're writing to a word limit and so on and so forth. There are, there's no shortage of other designers that I could conceivably have looked at, um, but Chalayan, at the time when I was conducting that research, was the designer that I felt was best suited to 
the um, to, to 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 the ideas that I wanted to discuss, which is why I chose him. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're almost out of time, and I wanted to ask to give you another opportunity to uh, not just well, maybe to talk about. Uh, like, do you have a title for your next book? Is it, how close is it? Is it, you know? Oh, it's, <laughs> it, it's not, it's not remotely close. Book, books are never close because they don't write themselves, <laughs> unfortunately. So I, no, I need to actually find, which is tragic. I wish they did. Um, but I need to find time to um, press on and write up the manuscript. Um, it will be ready for, it'll probably be out in, 18 months to two years' time, so um, 2017 ballpark. Mm-hmm. Um, I expect it to, to hit the shelves, um, but at the moment I really can't say any more than that. Um, I've got the ideas, I've got the, the bones sketched out, but now I need to just put the shoulder to the wheel, so to speak, and, and get the thing written. Yeah, I, that that was not intended to be to be any kind of pressure, but I was curious. So, <laughs> yeah, that was that was not the question. Um, but I I was curious about. It, it seems like it's about fashion too, right? The second book. Yes, it is. Um, and the feminine. It, mm-hmm. Yes, fashion. Um, what 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 I'm doing is, um, in many respects, I'm taking some of the um, ideas from my first book and making it more explicitly political um, because it, it, my, my first book is, as you've, you know, as you said, there's meaty chapters, it's highly conceptual and all the rest of it, which means that unless you have a very strong knowledge of psychoanalysis, there's a limit to how much use you can make of the ideas in the book. Um, what my second book is doing is hopefully going to make, it's going to be a bit more um, accessible for one um, and also a bit more politically relevant as well. I think hopefully it'll be um, more accessible to a wider audience mm-hmm. um, because okay, it so will, it, it'll still have course. a... I can assign your book. <laughs> you can, absolutely. And I will happily give a, a guest lecture on Skype to your students if you would like me to. That's fabulous. If I ever have a chance to do I taught fashion history for, for a number of years. and like I, oh, okay. I, yeah, but there was a dearth of, I mean, I, I, you know, I signed a lot from anthro and so, sociology and yeah. art history, yeah. of course. And I wanted to do yeah. something more, but then there was, there was so little. So... And that yeah. was right, and I stopped it's teaching not- it as your book came out, uh, mm-hmm. Fashion and Psychoanalysis came out. So anyway, I'm very, I'm very yeah. excited. <laughs> thank um, you. Thank you. So um, we've been, I'm just, we're wrapping up now, and uh, it's been really a lot of fun talking to you. Uh, you've written a really fascinating and much-needed book. Uh, again, we've been speaking with Alison Bancroft about fashion and psychoanalysis. Uh, thank you for joining us, Alison, and thanks to you our authors. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks. And thanks to our audience uh, for listening. Till next time. <laughs>